Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 8th of October. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today coming to you from London. This week, producer Aisha Aldris looks at the signing of the Abraham Accords one year on. At the same time, strategy isn't everything and strategic calculations are not the only calculation. And so it could be that from a symbolic perspective, there might be certain costs to drawing closer to Israel and distancing oneself from Palestine. And then Nick McAlpin explores the music of the Romani community in Turkey and hears of the struggles they have experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a sense in which some of that performance will be around showing off. How decorative can I be in my singing? How ornamented can I be in my playing of the clarinet? How extreme can I push this particular solo? But first... We had the offshore leaks in 2013, the Panama Papers in 2016, the Paradise Papers in 2017, and now the Pandora Papers were revealed this week. A massive leak detailing the efforts of the world's super-rich to hide their wealth. Joining us to discuss the leak is new Arab journalist Diana Agul. Hi, Diana. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Diana, the leak, which has been dubbed the Pandora Papers, is massive. Uh, what's in there? So the Pandora Papers are a huge investigation conducted by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists in Washington. They've been working with more than 140 media organisations on its biggest ever global investigation. And the amount of data is massive, and it's much larger than previous leaks. It consists of 6.4 million documents, 2.9 million images, 1.2 million emails, and almost half a million spreadsheets, and nearly 900,000 other pieces of data and information. The majority of the information is related to tax avoidance, hidden offshore properties, undeclared offshore investments and corruption. Uh, Diana, who are the big names from the Middle East mentioned in the Pandora Papers? So the names are quite big. Um, the largest name is Jordan's King Abdullah. Then we have the Lebanese Prime Minister Najib Mikati. Then we've got the former Prime Minister of Lebanon, Hassan Diab, the head of the Central Bank of Lebanon, Riyadh Salameh, and the Qatari ruling family. And what are they accused of? King Abdullah of Jordan is accused of spending over $100 million on real estate, and the most expensive of which was a $33 million home in Malibu, California. He also held properties worth about $28 million in the UK and four apartments in Georgetown, which is an expensive part of Washington, D.C., between 2012 and 2014. It has been speculated that the $16 million purchases were connected to his son, Crown Prince Hussein, who was attending Georgetown University at the time. 
Lebanon topped the list for the number of offshore companies established. The leaked documents revealed the existence of 346 offshore companies. This is over double the number of companies founded by the UK, who ranked second. It's worth noting that there is nothing illegal about offshore tax companies, and the Pandora Papers have shown no technical evidence of wrongdoing. However, the leak shows the concentration of power and wealth in Lebanon at a time when the country is experiencing an economic meltdown and the Lebanese people are finding it almost impossible to withdraw their own money from domestic banks. Lebanese Prime Minister Mkhati owned an offshore firm in Panama called Hesfile, through which he bought a property in Monaco worth 7 million euros. While Diab allegedly founded an offshore company in 2015 and owned 17 shares. The Qatari ruling family allegedly bought two of the UK's most expensive houses, one of which is in northwest London, in a deal that allowed them to avoid £18.5 million in stamp duty. And how have those named in the Pandora Papers responded to these accusations? The Jordanian royal court said that the deals mentioned in the leaks were, quote, personally funded by Abdullah and, quote, none have been funded by the state budget. The statement added that the media report, quote, distorted and exaggerated the facts. King Abdullah then claimed that the documents were part of a campaign against Jordan. Lebanon's Prime Minister Najib Mikati insisted that his family's wealth has been audited in the past and is perfectly legal. He said in a statement that his wealth is not necessarily accumulated at the expense of public interest and the needy. Hassan Diab said he gave up shares in the company mentioned in the Pandora Papers leak. He also denied wrongdoing and threatened to sue anyone who tried to defame him. The Qatari royal family has not yet responded. And how have the citizens of these countries reacted? There has been a lot of discontent, especially in Jordan and Lebanon. A Jordanian man who requested to be anonymous told the new Arab, I'm frustrated to say the least. The king has asked the people to press from below while he presses down on his ministers, but apparently that was all empty words. He added that there's a saying in Arabic, the one who guards is the one who steals. This perfectly applies to him. Is he even aware of the scale of the problems that the public is going through? I think not. In Lebanon, where over 80% of the country has been thrust into poverty and life has become unlivable for most residents, people reacted with anger and disappointment, but not surprise. Khodr Aido, a Lebanese political activist, told the New Arab, It's sad, but expected. In light of the corruption and collapse that's happening because of the ruling parties and organisations. Thanks for joining us, Diana. Thanks for having me. And for more coverage of the Pandora Papers and what it means for the Middle East, head over to the New Arab's website. It has been a little over a year since Israel and Arab states, the UAE and Bahrain, signed the Abraham Accords on September 15, 2020. The Abraham Accords are a so-called historic agreement that normalised ties between Israel and the Arab states, which also later came to include Morocco and Sudan. 
Through this, Israel and the Arab states formally and publicly established diplomatic relations. This also made the UAE and Bahrain the first countries to sign a peace deal with Israel in 20 years after Egypt in 1979 and Jordan in 1994. I'm Aisha Aldress and I'm here to dive into these accords with you one year on, alongside two experts who tell me about the accord's stability, maintenance and what they mean for Palestine. The accords, often referred to as historic agreements, were brokered by the US under former President Donald Trump's administration. They were negotiated by Trump's senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and special representative for international negotiations, Avi Berkowitz. The White House named the agreements the Abraham Accords after the Abrahamic faiths of those living in the Middle East. Essentially, the accords amount to a so-called peace deal, and the contract signed by the UAE reads the agreement to recall the treaties of peace between the state of Israel and Egypt, and between the state of Israel and Jordan, and commit to working together to realize a negotiated solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that meets the legitimate needs and aspirations of both peoples, and to advance comprehensive Middle East peace, stability, and prosperity. It also says the parties shall conclude bilateral agreements in various spheres of mutual interest, including finance and investment, maritime arrangements and legal cooperations. Many have referred to the accords as peace treaties and this has caused a stir amongst critics. The New Arabs correspondent in Washington DC, Brooke Anderson, explains exactly why this is, as she says a lack of consideration for Palestine in these deals could lead to their eventual undoing. Without an important role of Palestinians in these accords, it's it's hard to see how they can be sustainable for any of the parties. This goes for the Arab countries that have signed on, the Arab countries that are thinking of signing on, and the Palestinians themselves. The Palestinians are just not a part of it. And I think that that is one really key aspect that could make them unsustainable. It doesn't bring the region any closer to peace with the Palestinians. You have a whole region of predominantly Muslim countries where the people and the leaders feel very strongly about the Palestinian issue. I mean, you can say Palestinians, they don't have officially a state of of their own. It's not like their situation can be completely dismissed by stronger powers. You know, they're, they're still there. We, the world, can still see what's happening to them. But it does seem like the Abraham Accords, it's not really accepting this this reality. Then aside from that, um, you have the Arab countries who are part of the agreement who really don't get much. These countries with, you know, this so-called peace accord, they, they were never at war. So it's, I would say it's not correct to call it a peace accord, you know, because if you look at some articles about the Abraham Accords, they'll say, oh, this is the first normalization since um, Israel and Egypt. Well, Israel and Egypt were in a state of war. So it's really not the same thing. I mean, in many ways, it wasn't really a big step to begin with. It's important to acknowledge that this isn't really a peace accord. This is essentially putting onto paper maybe a relationship that already existed in some ways but just not officially i mean israel and the uae for many years had similar interests maybe not officially but there were probably business interests between the two so these sorts of um, alliances have already really existed even if it wasn't a completely 
on the table. Although the deal was created under the Trump administration, it was the Biden administration who took it over when President Joe Biden came into office. Jeremy Pressman, a professor of political science and director of Middle East Studies at the University of Connecticut for Foreign Affairs, believes that the changing administrations did somewhat affect the accords, though the administration have multiple other policies in place to support Israel. I think the shift from Trump to Biden did affect the accords. I wouldn't say it was the most dramatic change, but it was a notable change. For President Trump, the accords were arguably the most important foreign policy achievement he had during his four years. And he spoke in glowing uh, terms about the accords. President Biden is more focused on other issues. President Biden is certainly more focused on domestic issues in the US like COVID and trying to revive the economy. And these weren't his accords. The administration has been supportive of them. They have put some diplomatic effort in supporting them, diplomatic rhetoric, but it's not a signature achievement for the Biden administration. And so one senses there isn't that same enthusiasm to grow and expand the accords. I think Biden has a number of ways that he can show strong support for Israel that he has espoused rhetorically. The Biden administration was very supportive of Israel in May of this year when uh, Israel and Hamas were fighting. The Biden administration was very supportive more recently in the U.S. of a special budgetary allocation to Israel for its Iron Dome missile system. So I think the Biden administration has multiple ways to show that it's very supportive of Israel and maybe was a little bit uh, reticent, say. not It's not opposed in any way, I think, to the Abraham Accords, but was a little reticent to take what was President Trump's signature achievement and use that as the, the most important piece of, of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Nevertheless, one year later, the Biden administration publicly supported the deal with the U.S. Secretary of State holding a meeting with representatives from Israel, the UAE, Bahrain and Morocco to mark the one-year anniversary of the Accords. The State Department spokesman, Ned Price, said the administration was thrilled to celebrate the anniversary and said he hopes that Israel and other countries in the Middle East join in a common effort to create new avenues for dialogue and exchange in a video statement that he posted to his Twitter. We are thrilled to celebrate tomorrow's one-year anniversary of the signing of the Abraham Accords between the State of Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Israel and the Kingdom of Bahrain. We also celebrate the agreement between Israel and the Kingdom of Morocco to normalize relations. We strongly support these agreements, and we look forward to advancing other opportunities to expand cooperation between Israel and countries around the world. We also hope that as Israel and other countries in the region join together in common effort to build bridges and create new avenues for dialogue and exchange, we're able to make tangible progress towards the goal of advancing a negotiated peace between Israelis and Palestinians. Blinken also called for more Arab nations to recognize the state of Israel, after meeting four ministers on the 17th of September to commemorate the anniversary of the Normalization Accord. And in the meeting, he said the US would encourage more countries to follow the lead of the Arab states. With critics highlighting the exclusion of Palestinians in the Accords, Jeremy says the suggestion that Israel is a stronger ally for the Arab signatories is correct. I think it makes a lot of strategic sense to suggest that Israel is a valuable ally. Israel has one of the most powerful militaries in the world. Israel is a close ally of the United States, which itself has arguably the most powerful military in the world. So I, I think from a strategic perspective, it makes a lot of sense. 
at the same time, strategy isn't everything, and strategic calculations are not the only calculation. And so it could be that from a symbolic perspective, there might be certain costs to drawing closer to Israel and, and um, distancing oneself from Palestine. Throughout the past year, relations between Arab states and Israel have continued to grow. We've seen deepening diplomatic relationships, including the first Israeli embassy to open in Abu Dhabi and the first embassy of the UAE to open in Tel Aviv. Israel also named its first ambassador to Bahrain and Bahrain's first ambassador to Israel presented his credentials. Earlier this week, Israeli Interior Minister Ayelet Shaket also made her first official visit to the UAE and met her counterpart Sheikh Saif bin Zayed El Nehan on the sidelines of the Dubai Expo 2020. According to Israel Hayom, Shaket said the administration went out of its way to make it clear that a real partnership had been forged between the two countries, as she said she saw great importance in strengthening the relationship between Israel and the UAE. Talking about the agreement on the lead-up to its first anniversary, the Israeli ambassador to the US and UN, Jillian Erdan, said that the agreement could be compared to a marriage, in the sense that you have the big wedding party and make the vows to one another, but that the real test of any marriage is what happens when the cameras are off. However, Erdan added that one year later, she was very glad to see the agreements went beyond important symbolism, as she calls it. And on top of this, the ambassador from the UAE to the US, Yusuf Al-Utayba, says he thinks the two-state solution had been salvaged, as he argued that the US accords would still protect Palestinians. But not everyone agrees. Earlier this year, fighting in the Gaza Strip between Israel and Hamas led to 260 Palestinian deaths, and only mild calls for de-escalations were called for by the UAE, Bahrain and Morocco. There was no redressing of the normalization agreement for the protection of Palestinians. Jeremy Pressman believes that the Arab-Israeli relations and the conflict between Israel and Palestine are on sharply different trajectories. He also stated that events earlier this year between Palestine and Israel was already a big test for the accords, which didn't appear to shake it too much, meaning further potential escalations of a similar sort may not affect the accords either. I don't get the sense outwardly that what happened in May in Israel-Palestine affected the accords directly. Certainly it's possible behind the scenes there's things going on, but at least outwardly what we see is a continuation of the building of relationships between Bahrain and the Emirates and Morocco and, and Israel. What we saw in May was a pretty significant confrontation, right? We saw hundreds of Palestinians killed um, and, and several Israelis killed. And uh, we saw Palestinians protesting throughout Palestine, not just in one geographic area, but all across Palestine in different ways, culminating in the general strike in mid-May. So it was a significant moment and that didn't break the accords. So I think it would have to be a, a greater escalation than what we saw in May, a war going on for weeks and weeks, uh, maybe like tragically happened in the past, thousands of Palestinians dying, maybe something with, that was more dramatic and more deadly and caused more suffering on the Palestinian side um, than we already saw. Maybe that could shake things up, but, but it seems like that was a pretty serious test in May and it didn't, it didn't undermine the accords. It's most likely that the accords will continue on the path that they're on right now, gradual increasing relations between several Arab countries and Israel. But there are certainly things that could happen that would shake up the accords. I would say number one would be 
a change in position or significant opposition by one of the major Arab countries that's not party to the accords. And, you know, for instance, if Saudi Arabia took some kind of different position that strongly opposed the accords, that could shake things up. Also, if events change on the ground in Palestine and Israel, then the accords could move in a different direction. The official U.S. Department of State website says that the undersigned recognize the importance of maintaining and strengthening peace in the Middle East and around the world based on mutual understanding and coexistence, as well as respect for human dignity and freedom. They say they believe that the best way to address challenges is through cooperation and dialogue, and that developing friendly relations among the states advances the interests of lasting peace in the Middle East and around the world. Well, music has been with me for a very long time. This is Nazla Jan. She is part of Turkey's Romanla, or Romani community, and a member of the Mersin Romani Musicians Association. Mersin is a port city in Turkey's south. According to the World Directory of Minorities and Indigenous People, there are between 2 and 5 million Romanis in Turkey who can often be victims of poverty and discrimination. I've been singing for as long as I can remember. I don't play any instruments, I only sing. I have been for over 20 years. Music is a key part of Romani culture in Turkey, and the Romani people are celebrated globally for their skill in this area. Music Music is like an arm or a leg to us. It is indispensable. It is something that is always in our lives from the moment we wake up at home and always will be. So it is part of us. As core as music is, performing on stage can still be emotionally difficult. The only downside is we can never be sad or look sad. We are forced to only show our sadness in our songs and smile while we perform. Of course, there have been hard times, I'm not going to lie. When we're on stage in front of people, our sadness, our sorrows, our troubles, they don't matter. That's the only bad thing. Like for the rest of the world, the Romani community in Turkey have been severely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and securing gigs has proven to be a real struggle for Nazle and her fellow musicians. So, as you know, the music sector shut down during the pandemic. There was never any flexibility around the hours. Even in times when all the cafes were open, music was forbidden. You already kind of know about this. When people were chatting in cafes crammed together, we were told not to make music. The struggles of the coronavirus pandemic were compounded with the day-to-day struggles that members of the Romani community were already experiencing. We have nothing. We can't even go to the hospital when we are sick. On top of this, Nazle feels the authorities failed to provide adequate support during the coronavirus pandemic. When the government did help, it was very little. Everyone is still working without insurance. They could have at least put pressure on or incentivized venues to insure their workers. But they didn't even do that. They could have increased controls so people could have social security. A lot of musicians live hand to mouth and they don't get to own anything. The government has never really looked after us in that regard. As for many in the Romani community, scant pay for musicians is also a serious challenge. What we need are workplaces that will allow us to earn what we deserve. 
People already support us. We are already everywhere, on every stage, every orchestra, every studio recording, every album. We need more work opportunities and to earn what we deserve. Not more, just what we deserve. Romani music and dance is central to Romani identity in a fundamental way because it's a fundamental part of the economy. This is Dr. Adrian Marsh. He's British from a Romani-Irish traveller family and a researcher in Romani studies affiliated with the Swedish Research Institute in Istanbul. Adrian explained that just a few hundred years back, during the time of the Byzantine Empire, Romani people in the region were not professional musicians or dancers. However, as skills that can be taken almost anywhere, working in these roles fits well with their roaming culture. We're commercial nomads, we're itinerants, and therefore our economy is the basis for the entire society, and it's a dependent one. What I mean by that is the Romani economy is entirely based on the fact that it is a relationship, an economic relationship with the gorgeous, with the gajos, the non-Romani people. Because without the non-Romani people, there is no Romani economy. We can't fix your watches or mend your teapots or dance and sing for you or play for you unless you are there. Music is practiced in a few ways by Turkey's Romani community. The music is important because it's about a transaction which is based on a very particular performance. And what I mean by that is there is Romani music which is produced for the Romani community themselves. Then there's Romani music which is produced for other people, which has a monetary value to it. There's additionally a type of Romani music which is a way to earn a living but that also has another distinct element to it. There's the kind of Romani music which Romani musicians, especially amongst the elite of Romani musicians, Selim Sesler when he was alive, uh, God bless him, which is played publicly in a performance which includes a lot of the gorgeous, the gajo, but at which you're also aware that both the people you are with and an element of the audience is also Romani and probably musicians. This leads performers to take their work to its limits. So there's a sense in which some of that performance will be around showing off. How decorative can I be in my singing? How ornamented can I be in my playing of the clarinet? How extreme can I push this particular solo? This extravagance is commonly egged on by others in attendance. Romney musicians will often say to each other, well, you're playing the gypsy now, aren't you? Oh, go on, go on, go on, go on. There's this kind of, you know, firing people up to play the gypsy, to play this. So there's a sense in which they know they're playing with a stereotype. They know they're playing with this idea that all Romney people are musicians. But they're also fulfilling and enjoying and enchanting. It's the uses of enchantment, both in order to generate much higher income and in order to generate the sense of honour and prestige. Despite the pressures Romani musicians face, there's good reason to believe this sort of scene is here for the long haul. Nazla again. Every new child is born and grows up devoted to their culture and to their music, so we will carry it on. I don't think it will come to an end. I don't think it will be forgotten.
Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself with Aisha Aldris and Nick McAlpin, with additional help from Rosie McCabe, Diana Al-Ghul and Sarah Khalil. Our theme music was by Omar El-Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can find The New Arab Voice on Twitter and now also Instagram. And don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.